were not born knowing how to build a campfire. And so we could also safely say we're not born knowing how to maintain a campfire once it's going, how to keep it going. So relationships are no different. We're not born knowing how to do relationships, knowing how to hold healthy boundaries, how to interact. This is something that we're taught. That is the voice of today's guest, Ryan Cheney. And you are listening to The Stimulus Podcast. Hello, my friends. How you doing? Hope you're well. My name is Rob Orman, and I am your host for the show where we break down ideas, strategies, tactics, habits, mindsets, and who knows what else to help you live and work with intent, elevate, and kick ass. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. To wit, most of the work that I do with coaching and courses is online, which is lovely. That's how we're connecting right now. Yet there is something irreplaceable about coming together in person to learn and grow, which is why we are hosting Awake and Aware. It's our 2024 live in-person event, May 1st through 3rd, Bend, Oregon, USA. Awake and Aware is a three-day experience with a meticulously crafted curriculum and expert-led interactive sessions that go beyond the ordinary. This is not the typical conference where you just kind of sit and absorb. And for those of you who are regular listeners to Stimulus, some of what we'll get into in the workshop is how to operationalize many of the concepts that you hear on this show. And our goal is for participants to leave with enhanced personal and professional skills, a sense of community, and a refreshed perspective. And we've deliberately limited attendee numbers to foster a personal and impactful experience. And those who were at our previous event in Sedona have recounted to us stories of enduring friendships and I guess what you would call transformative moments. We aspire to offer the same to you. This is a CME event because you know what? Sometimes that is an important thing to know. For details, the website is awakeandawarebend.com. You can register there. You can see the faculty, what we're going to be doing. And dare I say it, you can also use the early bird code for $100 off registration. That is fully awake 24. Awake and Aware Bend, May 1st through 3rd, 2024. I hope to see you there. On today's show, Ryan Cheney, a man of many talents. He is a licensed professional counselor, psychotherapist, a breath work specialist, leads a lot of local breath work workshops. He's a certified behavioral leadership coach and an extreme performance training coach. The man wears a lot of hats and oh, wears them well. And for those of you who will be at Awaken Aware, I know I thought I was finished talking about it. I guess I wasn't. For those of you who will be at Awaken Aware in May, along with Scott Weingart, Britton Mike Mallon, and me, Ryan will be one of the core speakers. And for full disclosure, Ryan and I are also the event planners and the hosts. And to that point, he's someone I get to spend a lot of time with and learn from. And today's show about this compelling idea, or maybe call it a metaphor, Ryan said almost in passing that gave me pause and in some ways transformed how I view the world. 
So much so that when he said it, I said, man, we need to get to the studio straight away and just start talking about that. And that's what we did. If you notice that this conversation meanders a bit, that's why. We started off with this kernel of an idea, which you'll hear about in a moment. And then it was a liftoff. No map. Let's get to it. We were talking about what healthy relationships look like. And you threw down a metaphor that I've been thinking about it ever since. And that was the campfire. Yes, campfire. This is an analogy that came from a course that I used to teach. And it was titled Living with People. And it was all about connection and boundaries and the different ways that we interact. And so most of us like visualizations and, and help with this and with analogies. And so this one, the campfire, talks about basically the different kind of elements that go into health, your own health. It talks about the elements of who am I? Who are you? Who are we together? Campfires. Most people have some experience making a campfire, right? Maybe if you're not a camper, maybe at the beach you did a campfire or bonfires in high school. But the question to start out with is, are you born knowing how to build a campfire? No. Because when I was at Camp Tackahoe as a child and fire building was one of the requisite skills, I never got one going. But now as an adult... I have a propane torch to start my fires. I'm amazing. So makes it so much easier. So <laughs> no, we are not firsthand experience. Not. We're not born knowing how to build a campfire. And so we could also safely say we're not born knowing how to maintain a campfire once it's going, how to keep it going. So relationships are no different. We're not born knowing how to do relationships, knowing how to hold healthy boundaries, how to interact. This is something that we're taught. And so we're taught as children from a very early age through just absorbing and watching and, and other times explicitly taught by parents, extended family, community members, coaches, you name it. We start learning the art of relationship. And so this is where we start learning how to build our campfire. And a part of that campfire is learning how to even start a campfire mm. because the campfire represents your ability to live a thriving, healthy life. It's like your life force. And so what does it look like to have your life force? What does it look like to gather the right ingredients to be able to continue to keep that fire? Was that fire ever even lit for you? So it looks very different from person to person. So first of all, the first look is, how's my own campfire going? Do I even know how to maintain my health, my campfire? Where do I give it away? Do I know how to gather the wood, per se? That's your vital life force. Yep. Campfire is you. Yep. That's the metaphor. You're it. Yep. And You're we, the campfire. And everyone else you know in your life has their own campfire as well. You got to tend it. Got to bring in sticks. Got to you know, make sure you're not putting on wet wood, wet wood. Got to manage that. It's like all of these things, whatever you bring in, whatever you put in physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, that's going to affect the flame. Yeah. And that's something we learned through our childhood. And then to add to that, we start learning how to interact with different campfires. 
each person having their own. So we can start to look at what do unhealthy and healthy patterns look like in a campfire. To rewind a little bit, this is important because most of us, I would say all of us, but I'm sure there's a few people that are wired a little differently, but most of us are wired for connection. It's how we survived for so long, running around in tribes, connecting, taking care of each other. So it's a vital piece. And sometimes it's taught very well and sometimes it's not. So imagine you have that person in your life who maybe wasn't taught how to interact with other people's campfires or how to maintain or start their own. So they come over to your campfire and they're constantly taking and taking or they're asking you to come over to their campfire and they don't want you to leave because you being there makes it okay. You being there helps their fire keep going. And if you stay there and you don't recognize this, maybe your campfire starts to go out because you're not attending to it anymore. Or maybe they come steal your wood and take out, or that we can come up with so many scenarios of different relationships. So if you'd pause and you just look at some of the relationships in your life, do I have any really good ones? What does that interaction look like around the campfire? Because a really healthy interaction is, yeah, sometimes my campfire is low, even if I know how to maintain it. And it really helps to have somebody in your life to come over and be like, hey, I got you. I got extra wood. I'm here. I can help you maintain this. But it's not something that stays that way. I also allow you to go back and maintain your own. And down the road, maybe your campfire is low. And so I can come over and help with that. And that's how we have more resilience within each other, like healthy codependency. And that codependency word is something that's very pathologized in my field and in our culture, but there's healthy versions of it. Or maybe we could say healthy interdependency. I don't think you can get away from codependency, just throwing a wet blanket on the conversation, but, totally. but we are interdependent. Other, otherwise we're isolated. And I think as we go through that, I'm thinking about this campfire metaphor when you are truly interdependent and you give, you take, you give, there's give and take, then that leads to healthiness on both sides. If we're sticking with the campfire metaphor, then we both make our each other's flames burn bright. It creates a stronger, more resilient pair. When there is codependency, it's more of you each feed off each other's fires and drain the energy. And there's rarely a true building up or if it's going to be transactional, there's rarely a, like a true giving to elevate the mm -hmm. other. I don't know. I, am I going too far off the metaphor, taking too much of it or, or on no, base? This is the beauty of that metaphor. And I think really good ones is there's a lot of flexibility to them. And so you use it as a framework to start to reflect and process it to a greater degree. Like what's my campfire look like? Do I struggle with any parts of this? Or what are, the relationship, what are the relational dances happening in my life? Who am I? Who are you? Who are, we, who are we together? And you can start to see where maybe you have healthier relationships and less healthy relationships. It's a nice way to pause and have an image of, yeah, what's going on with the campfire here? I know that in the community where you were developing this, there are a lot of unhealthy relationships. When I was working in the ED... I would see the denizens of this hamlet were disproportionate number of patients in the emergency department. And it was because of trauma, chemical dependency, relational issues. So you're presenting this metaphor to this group. 
what happens? Well, let's say when someone takes it well and they're in that situation, what happens? Often the, what would happen is the light bulb would go off for them. And following that light bulb is the vast difference in, in responses from a lot of deep sadness, realizing I, I, I have no idea how to build my own campfire to anger because of the realization of what they've been through and the effects it's had on them. So there can be so many different responses, which is fine, right? It's meeting them where they're at and and working and processing with that. Most of the time it was a really positive experience. And then they'd start really thinking about the relationships and sharing the different, oh, okay, this this is how this campfire works and this is what it feels like. They're constantly coming over and trying to steal all my wood. And okay, what does that actually look like? What's their behaviors? How does it affect you? What's the emotions, the sensations, the thought patterns? Getting to dive into all this stuff to start to create some awareness to the relational interactions, the connection. I want to bounce back something that's popping into my head in the last minute or two as you're talking about that. And it is the locus of control in a relationship. And it's so easy to identify something outside of us as the core cause of what's not going well for us. And I had written down this note, how do you operationalize this knowledge? Or how do you operationalize this metaphor? Locus control is what came to mind as the first thing. It is You've got all these other things and you're blaming all these other people and they're bl- and all, there's all of these external factors where you are an external factor for someone, they're an external for you. But so much of this comes back to agency and stoicism and what is in your control here. And so it seems like operationalizing this knowledge, the first thing is, okay, there, I've got all these relationships in my life of varying degrees of health, of varying degrees of give or take. But I got to think, what's going on with me and what am I doing with this fire right now? Completely excluding any of these external factors. Yeah. You know, as I heard you talking, the, the word that kept popping in my mind was blame. And this is something when I work with couples, it's something that we and even in these classes, and it can be challenging pe- for people a little bit. As soon as we can get away from blaming, we start the process of shifting this. And so sometimes the stickiness for somebody in blaming might be blaming others, which is, again, another form of disconnection, alienation, separation. Others, it's self-blame, the inner critic. Oh, I'm never good enough. And it can be a mixture of both. And most often it is going to be a mixture of both. But the blame pattern, it's like it it takes away, it's disempowering. It takes away any locus of control. And as soon as I can get a couple or a family or a group to move out of blaming, which is difficult because there's usually a lot of pain, hurt. It's a protective measure. But when we can get out of that and we can start to get that I don't know if we've talked about Curious George on the podcast before, but we can start to get to this place of curious, warm, non-judgmental observation of self first and then of others, like the game starts to change. You start to see things more clearly and you gain some of that locus of control back. I love that Curious George because curiosity is the antithesis of the dark 
almost. It's just once you have that curiosity, then you can start to grow. And when we're talking about blame, I'm not sure if I've said this on stimulus before, but one of my favorite self-coaching exercises surrounding this idea of and and this I'm gonna I'm gonna translate this. So the original slogan or instruction is take all blames into one or take all blames into you. And it doesn't mean blame yourself for everything, but it means when blame comes up, when you feel blame come up, it's easy to just have it take over. Oh, F you, blame you. We know that blaming never helps. So back to this idea of taking all blames into one, taking all blames into you is becoming aware of when blame arises. What's the thought? What's the emotion? Where do you feel it? What's going on? Using blame as a almost like a focus of thought or something to practice with throughout the day. And it's so empowering because as you say, when you blame, you are disempowering yourself. But when you realize, okay, blame is coming up in me. I am holding them responsible for this. Now, maybe they are responsible for some events that are happening, but not the emotions and events that happen in me. I'm responsible for that. So what does blame look like? Where's blame taking me? And I've been playing with that for a while, just myself, and have found so many times a day, blame pops up. And it's not- It's a, f- a form of judgment, right? Yeah. Oh, it's the judgiest judge of all judges. It's Judgy McGee with the captain's <laughs> hat. And so it's like meditation. It's like kettlebells, like running. You know, As you build up that muscle, you just become more aware of, oh, there's blame. I'm blaming them. We're both in this dance. What's going on in me? You know, anytime we're going to be working on this stuff, talking on this stuff, whether it's individually or with other people, resistance is going to come up. The blame is, yes, a form of a judgy judgment, right? It, like it's there. <laughs> and okay, pause. What's this about? When we start to, man, so much of my work with people, whether it's coaching or workshops or my clinical counseling work, it's like, what's the resistance? What's the resistance to feeling this thing called blame, the thoughts, the inner critic, whatever it is that's coming up? Because when we start to learn to, and this is maybe the upper levels of emotional intelligence or awakening, when we start to realize that the resistance is mostly the problem, and then we can get curious about the thing that's coming up, whether it's a thought or emotion or narrative, it doesn't really matter then it just is. It's not good or bad. It just is. And when it just is, now we can sit with it. And when we sit with it, we can be curious and then we can learn and then we can can uncover that and gain a sense of agency back. It's a process. It sounds so easy to talk about. (laughs) It's much harder to operationalize. (laughs) Tell me more about resistance. So that's a, a really interesting one, Rob, because resistance is such a powerful thing. And it's fascinating to me when you start to explore that with people, what that's about. And largely it ends up being very emotional. There's a sensation to it in the body. There's a a pain, a hurt, a something. And so it's something we don't want to experience. And that resistance can be unique to the individual. It can be many different forms of resistance. 
It can be tied to wishfulness, which is a suffering state. It can be tied to not wanting to be hurt again. Because if, if we go back to this idea that we're all hardwired for the most part for this deep connection with each other. And depending on what you've experienced in life, you develop a, a programming of sorts on what your relationship to people, the environment is. And so the resistance ends up being this, it's not real in the sense of it needs to be, but it, it's this tool where you design to keep yourself from getting hurt or to keep yourself from feeling a certain thing. And because of experiences and because of different programming, it can be considered this negative thing. And the idea is like, wow, if I build my capacity, the word equanimity comes to mind. If I can build my equanimity, if I can build this ability to pull myself out of the bubble and just notice and watch rather than resist, then it changes. And over time, I get better. I build resilience. I build the ability to sit in harder and harder things and uncover the layers. Because let's be honest, people are complex. We're full of layers. I know I'm going to spend the rest of my life continuing to learn who Ryan is and uncover different parts and levels of awakening per se, because we're complex. And so the resistance keeps us from diving in and learning. Is resistance the struggle against acceptance? The first, my instant answer without overthinking it is, yeah. Acceptance is the opposite of resistance. So one, one of my favorite poems, I should pull it up, is this roomy poem. It's called The Guest House. Let's pull it up. And, and I, every time I pull this up, I'm like, oh, I should just take the time to memorize this. Maybe so, make it your screensaver. What's your screensaver right now? Just like an ocean beach scene. Ryan's gone to Kauai tomorrow, so I, th I think that might be on the mind. <laughs> <laughs> okay, The Guest House. So I end up reading this or working with a lot of my clients around this idea because it, beneath it is acceptance and letting go of the resistance. And this is a hard one because a lot of us look at, uh, at acceptance as like a defeat or I'm like a doormat. And this is where then like blame comes in and all the protectors and the, and the different elements. So that's not what we're talking about. Letting go of blaming, letting go of the resistance, leaning into acceptance, there is still room for, that was not okay what that person did to me. There's still room for, I need to hold a boundary with this person, or I need to let that go or move away from that person, that situation. So the guest house is, a, is something that I use for people to help with this. So this is a roomy poem. I'm going to read it now for you guys. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness coming as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever or whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. 
That poem speaks to the lack of resistance. And not only lack of resistance, oh, okay, fine, but like joy. Meet them at the door with laughter. That's hard to do, but that's lack of resistance. That's pure acceptance. Because acceptance is how we find peace. Peace isn't the absence of hurt, pain, sorrow, sadness. It is the full acceptance, the lack of resistance, feeling it all, processing it, that creates peace. We were talking in the beginning about what constitutes a healthy relationship. And I thought we were talking about relationships with other people, but as you bring up that Rumi poem, what pops into my mind is these relationships that we have with ourselves, or maybe not ourselves, but these aspects of ourselves, these thoughts within ourselves, and really can be at war with what's going on inside of us. And I want to change course just a degree or two and dig into something which helps a lot of so the listeners or has helped a lot of the listeners achieve and get to where they are is really just a recipe for misery in so many ways. And that is perfectionism. I'm thinking about awareness and acceptance of this and welcoming it in and what's going on and creating boundaries in yourself. So how would that fit in? I would call myself like a recovering perfectionist (laughs) (laughs) because it is a journey. It's hard. And I'll never forget as a young man, a man in my, gosh, I must've been late twenties sitting on the couch doing some of this kind of work around perfectionism and and where it comes from and this like sense of I got to prove I'm good enough and uncovering those kind of the layers of experiences of life that created that narrative that created that programming and I'll never forget my the counselor I was working with who I feel pretty lucky that I got to work with somebody for a big chunk of my young adulthood life and he was like Ryan what would it look like or feel like to just sit there on that couch knowing that you are worthy just being you in this moment, just breathing the air you breathe, not achieving or doing anything? And it was such a foreign concept. I was like, what? What do you mean? Our culture, especially in the US, is so valued on achievement. And we get this objectification happening to us very young age, so fast. You're such an athlete. You're such a And and you start to attach your value to that. And then we protect and we build ourselves a little box essentially over time to keep ourselves in that lane or to be perfect, to prove I am this thing that I struggle with feeling good enough. Going to break in for a moment to let you know about some of our free resources at roborman.com. These were created to address very specific stress points in medical practice. Scripting, your least favorite conversations. You know, why reinvent the wheel every time you have one of your least favorite conversations? Have a framework that works and doesn't deplete you. For charting, there are my favorite documentation templates and the classic in its fourth edition, the quick and dirty guide to calling consults. I know many of you have already availed yourself to one or all of these. And if you have yet to, 
you can click on the freebies link on the website menu and you will be rocking. Or if not rocking, you will at least be on the page where you can get the goods, which is, that's kind of rocking. Back to the show. The perfectionist state that you and I will both be navigating for the rest of our lives, right? It's, I can't throw them out of the vehicle. It's a part of me. But this perfectionist state, it's this hypervigilance. And there is also an aspect, and I'm thinking about it in every arena where I've ever worked. It's, you know, how they tell you not to leave certain things plugged in because it's like a trickle, it's like an energy vampire. It's like that, this low-level, sympathetically activated state trickling out your energy all the time. It is an energy vampire. And it can hold us back in so many ways. Energy vampire, that's the way, yeah. Yeah. And you can achieve a lot with it too. And there's a cost. And I'm not saying sit back and be this potato on the couch and that's all you're worth. No, you can still do and grow and achieve amazing things. The driver behind it starts to shift when you start to look at, huh, what is this inner critic? What, like, what creates this urge to need to perform to this degree? I didn't always exist in this way. I know I didn't if I dig deep enough. Like, where did this start? Is where does this suit me? Where's the cost? Is this feeding me or is this just draining me? What's at the root of this? The root of perfectionism. I the longer I do all this stuff, I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) what do you think? Maybe. I don't know. But for sake of this conversation, the if we go back to this idea that we're hardwired for connection, and depending on what kind of a connection we had growing up no parent can be perfect no caretaker where we get where this hits us the hardest is people that we expect to be caretakers and a kid's not you're not aware of this growing up most for the most part people aren't so imagine parents extended family coaches if you're religious pastors doctors like here's this person in power It's a caretaker. And so we have this attachment cycle that starts to just naturally happen. We have some type of need. Out of that need comes an arousal. And hopefully we have somebody in our life that can attune to that arousal. And if they attune, and again, no parent's perfect. um, What do you mean attune to that arousal? Yeah. Let me, okay, I'll give a really simple analogy for this. See, most people will be able to relate to this to some degree. There's a baby crying. So this baby has some form of a need. And the crying is the arousal. Now at this point, the caretaker doesn't necessarily know, is this baby hungry? Is it cold? Does it just need to be comforted? Does it need to be burped? And so hopefully the caretaker is there to attune. All right, I'm going to try burping. No, that didn't work. I'm going to hold. Okay, maybe it's not hungry. Over time, your attunement can get better and better. And moms will attest to this. Oh, that cry is hunger. That cry is, I need to be held. That's attuning to that person's emotional needs, their physical needs, their psychological needs. Somebody that can say, oh, I can tell something's going on. I'm here for you. What's going on? That's interesting to hear. When you, and when you say doctors, when it connects with a patient, it's when you're attuned. And when you're not, when it's, look, I just got to get in and out of here. What's your problem? Totally. I'm gonna go, it's, it doesn't work. 
and neither of you have a good experience. And that's alarming these unconscious relational systems, right? So if we get attunement, then we experience gratification. Out of gratification, we build trust. Not only trust in that person that's attuning to us, but trust in the world, trust in ourselves. And so round and around we go in this kind of attachment cycle. And I always tell people when, when I draw this out and we're learning it, it usually blows people's minds. Oh my gosh, I didn't have attunement very often at all in my childhood. Or, oh, this person really attuned to me well. No wonder I felt so good around them. And this person didn't. Now, we don't have to be perfect. Some of the research suggests 30% of the time is all we're aiming for. The key for that healthy attachment or that healthy relational pattern is that those that get it 30% recognize when they don't, and they learn how to circle back around and repair with that person. And that creates more resilience and, and a stronger person anyway. So we don't want to get it 100% of the time. Going back to the campfire and models, what's a healthy relational pattern when somebody hurts you or misattunes or blows you off or whatever else? Can that person recognize it and circle and repair or not? So you're setting up all these patterns. So we've dug a little bit into root causes of where some of these things may come from. But here we are still dancing, as Ted Lasso says. And this perfectionist lives within us. There is this aspect, maybe it's an inner voice that says, you are not enough. That's oftentimes what it is. If we're thinking about that just in the context of these different campfires and these relational patterns and these relational patterns in yourself, what are ways to frame this and operationalize accepting it and moving on in a healthy way rather than being hobbled by it? Yeah, the, the word that comes up for me is detachment. This knowledge is a, a potential for a little bit of detachment in the sense of, oh, that isn't who I am. I've created some identity. That is a pattern that came out of some experiences and my system came up with an answer or multiple answers. So when we think of that attachment cycle, there's a need that's always been there. And if it doesn't get met, we start looking for it in other ways. We start trying to get it in other ways. And so sometimes that might be, oh, if I'm just a little bit better, if I get straight A's, I'll get that attunement, that attention, that care from somebody who means a lot to me. Or it can go the opposite direction of, I'm not good enough. And we start to abandon ourselves or the critic starts, that seed of the critic really starts to come up. And that's more of the collapse. So we come up with these different kind of answers and move forward. So wait a second, hang on. You just said collapse. Elaborate on that. Oh, we could really dive deep. That's a whole nother. I'll do a skim. <laughs> Elaborate on that in a truncated way. Right. <laughs> so often when our systems are trying to play with this, like we have our nervous system, there's this sympathetic reaction, there's parasympathetic calm, and there's some more detailed models like polyvagal theory, which I'm not going to get into, but there's this middle zone where we can really be in relationship. And often we'll have different responses, right? So hypervigilance is generally perfectionism. Maybe not, oh my gosh, panic, but it's a more activated state of existence. And if we get, if we stay there long enough and we're just, it's not making any progress, then what can happen is like a form of collapse. And that collapse then can manifest in all kinds of different feelings or detachment or 
depersonalization. It, it's this lack of being able to be connected to self or relationship in a lot of different ways. So none of us are ever purely like anything. I always think that's really important when talking about people about theories and models in different ways because we're complex. So when there's shame and there's this disconnect, and maybe you struggle with your own campfire or your answer has been one person's answer. I'll never forget as a student, I was learning about like personality disorder stuff and I was learning about the diagnostic stuff. And I went to my counselor and we were talking about that and he was like, Ryan, there's so many people that have experienced hurt in childhood and they just come up with different answers, right? One answer is going to be the high performer. That's the lawyer, the neurosurgeon. No, like they are proving that they are worthy. Another answer is going to be at the time what I was working with was this community mental health. Those people that really struggle to ever thrive at all. That's that shut down, that withdrawal, self-sabotage, all the different ways. And we all sabotage ourselves in different ways, different levels. So we all come up with different answers. The perfectionist is one answer, prove I'm not this thing. And then it's compounded by our culture. It's a perfectionist culture. It's an achievement culture. So this is all a spectrum. It's not black or white, but it's all connected. If we're going to surf the wave of this metaphor, and I guess surfing the wave of a fire, I'm mixing things in a, a very ineffective way. So sticking with this metaphor. If we're going to fan the fire. Gonna fan, fan the fire. fire. Yeah, Throw on some Duraflame. One of the things that is essential to healthy relationships are boundaries. We've mentioned boundaries many times, but I want to just get specific. And I'll put this in the show notes. This is this will not be in the podcatcher. This will be on the website. It's this, and I don't even know where it came from. It just showed up on my desk one day, and nobody in the house knows what is this thing. It's just a it's a list of phrases to use to help create healthy boundaries. Hey, I know you're upset, but it's not okay to speak to me like that. You're setting a boundary or I know this is really important to you and I want to talk about it. I don't have the bandwidth right now. Creating a boundary. And one of the challenges that I think a big cohort who's listening right now, one of the challenges they have is they want to be liked and not make waves and not have conflict. And so oftentimes we'll have an aspect of appeasement. I know I've got it. And sometimes what that means is you don't set up the proper boundaries because I just, I don't want there to be any friction here. I always, it's like, what's the first step? And go back to a lot of the work we do in workshops and stuff like awareness. Because this isn't about just slapping on boundaries. Okay, here's this boundary <laughs> phrase. Slap it on. Here's your <laughs> boundary <laughs> phrases. Here's because it like let's pause before you start slapping on the boundary phrases on what's my relationship to boundaries oh if i slow down for a moment what's this pull of just letting this skate is it i'm overwhelmed because i have a docket of patience and charting to do and all this stuff and it sometimes takes time to establish boundaries or to have that conversation or to slow down to hear that person but share your peace so there's so many techniques on boundary setting and ways to phrase it, which are important. Those are the skills. But if we just build a bunch of skills and we don't have any awareness to 
our own fire and our own relationship to boundaries and what's driving it. I think we often end up in a place where they don't work very well. I was reading uh, Rich Roll's book the other day and he was talking about this idea. This is a little expanded, but so many of us focus on the what, what, how, how, how. Maybe it's career, maybe it's a relationship, whatever it is. And so we get so focused on the what or the how that we don't even ask the why. And if we take this a step further, maybe we've asked the why, but how well do we even know ourselves? So if we don't know ourselves very well, then our why, it's turning off the lights and trying to shoot your arrow at the target. It could be way off. So who am I? The why? What is my relationship to boundaries? What are all... And this takes work. It takes a little bit of time to sort out. And then why? And then what and how? So often in my field, even in the clinical field of mental health, we can get so stuck on skill, build knowledge, very important top-down techniques, structures. I always say pause. We can have all the skills in the world, but if we don't know how to apply them, we don't know ourselves very well, we don't know our why, it gets all messed up. And so that's where I'll see people try to make boundaries and it, it doesn't work very well because there's just not enough understanding to this to themselves, to that other person, to the dance of the relationship. I love that you brought up the list like, oh, we're going to publish this list of boundaries, which I'm still going to do because I think that there's some good grist for them. 100%. But it makes me think, so I saw the other day, there's this New York Times article about Joan Rivers jokes and she had all her jokes on note cards, not all her jokes, but like thousands of jokes and note cards. And one thing that they had was she had a list of responses to hecklers. (laughs) uh, I'll put put that on the site too. (laughs) It was, yeah, here you go. Here's the 20 responses for these different situations. And when you said, yeah, sometimes a list doesn't work. I was like, oh yeah, but a list on responses to hecklers. (laughs) (laughs) That'll work every time. For sure. And it's not, that stuff's powerful. It's still good. And I'm a big believer on parallel processes happening. You can do both of these at the same time. You can build the skill. You can look at the list of boundary statements. You can learn, okay, what's the factual behavior that I'm struggling with? What's the concrete effect on me? How does it make me feel? What's the ask? And get good at communicating that to other people. That's one skill. That's great. It's a good thing. We have to slow down and practice it. It's much harder to actually do than to see the concept. And then at the same time, you can learn to slow down and be like, okay, what's really going on here? What's my part in this? What's this about? What are the patterns? This is the curiosity. Notice curious. I want to use that to dig a little more deeply into appeasement, which is such a Swiss cheese, cheesecloth, holy boundary, lots of holes. Not angels singing. You get what I'm saying. You tell a joke and then you explain the joke and it's just not as funny. (laughs) Okay. So appeasement, which I think most of us have to some degree. What does it look like? And then when you're getting into the, to the why and then the how and what, how do you start to navigate that? Even before that, I'm going to ask you a question. What's the difference between appeasement and compromise? What's the difference between that? I feel like compromise at least has an aspect of engagement. Let me see where you're coming from. Here's where I'm coming from. 
there is also some degree, varying degrees of agency with that. With, I had, I thought about this before, I've never been asked this question. With appeasement, I feel like you're giving that up. And I'm not looking at like, oh, there's a perfect definition for both, but it's an interesting kind of question to be curious about. And like, huh, what do I feel about those two different things? Did I kind of lump them together a little bit or not? Appeasement has more of a flavor of protection. What are you protecting? It's going to be different for different people. But generally you're protecting, at least I feel in, in my experience with people, you're protecting a fear around something like disconnect or rejection, rejection, or yeah. abandonment or a humiliation. And so appeasing is, okay, if I do this, then I'm not going to feel that or that person's not going to leave or be angry at me or fill in the blank. So there's a protective factor of it, a little different. We've covered so much different stuff yeah. and serpentined our way through, through this and that. But getting back to the main theme of what is it that makes healthy relationships and the metaphor of the campfire and what's going on with yours? How are you interacting with others? How are others interacting with your fire? What do you want people to take away and reflect on their own relationships with, let's just say with others, we got into the self and I think that's a whole nother conversation, but just their external relationships. Those are intimately connected and also separate. Our relationship with ourself does have a big interaction with our relationship of others. So it often starts there. If you want to feel different in other relationships, look at yourself, do that work. Okay. Takeaway. When you were so wonderfully summarizing our journey all over the place, very connected, but all over, what popped up for me for hope for people to take away around this is that whether we're talking about campfires or any of this, is we're in a big dance. We're in an interrelational dance with ourselves, with others, the environment around us. And when we can start to recognize, step back, maybe the mile high view and watch the dance and get curious about it and notice it, we can start to interact different. And where we feel best is when, not we're witness, but when we're seen, heard, and supported in an interactional dance, that's when we start to really thrive and feel good in our relationships. And so it's complex. Who am I? Who are you? Who are we together? What's that dance look like? How's the campfire work or not? All right. How can people find you? Get a hold of me. So coaching stuff, ryancheneycoaching.com. Feel free to email me, ryancheneycoaching at gmail.com. And we'll have a link to Ryan's website in the show yeah. notes. Clinical work, that's newtightscounseling.com for the, the clinical mental health stuff. Those would probably be the easiest main ways to get a hold of me and check out what I'm doing and do some work together if you'd love to. Ryan, it's always a treat and always an elevation. Oh, likewise. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. And that is it for today. And you know what? If you love medicine, but you find the job itself leaves a lot to be desired, 
I work with docs in your shoes who feel the same way and help them extend their careers and have fun doing it. Can you imagine driving to your next shift with a feeling of stoke and excitement? And then when you leave for the day, you think to yourself, hey, that was pretty damn great. We can help get you there. And you can reach out to me at roborman.com. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.